Hello and welcome to the Documentary Photography Review podcast with myself, Rebecca Enderby, and co-presenter Chris King. In this series of podcasts, we interview documentary photographers working on stories local to them, where they live or where they are from. Today we speak to Claudia Leisinger, a London-based freelance portrait and documentary photographer. In this interview, we focus on her project, The Last of the Fish Porters. The Fish Porters, which have for generations been working at Billingsgate Market, all lost their jobs in 2012, and Claudia documented the porters in their last year at work. We talk in depth about this project and her choice of taking portraits and overcoming issues of trust and access. We also discuss her use of multimedia and its value in documentary photography projects. Claudia tells us about her journey into photography, fueled by an inquisitive nature and deep-rooted interest in people, perhaps stemming from a well-travelled childhood. We discuss her experiences of her Masters at London College of Communication and subsequent challenges of juggling being a mother and carrying out photographic work. Show notes with information on Claudia's work and any photographers, exhibitions or organisations mentioned in the podcast are available at documentaryphotoreview.com forward slash podcasts and then navigate to the page for Claudia's podcast. Whilst there, please do take time to explore the site. You'll find a diverse range of photography from all around the globe. Thank you to everyone who has rated and reviewed the podcast on iTunes and to those of you that have shared it with others via Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. We are very grateful for your continued support and encouragement and we are always working on refining the production and distribution of the podcast. So now for our conversation with Claudia Leisinger. Enjoy. To kick things off, uh, can you tell us a bit about your journey into photography and also a bit about um, how you work with photography and how you've evolved as a photographer? My journey into photography... First, I uh, was a secondary school teacher in Switzerland, and I kind of felt that I was, um, it was not the end of what I wanted to do. Um, and I took a video camera and a photography camera and something to write, and, and I went on a trip by myself um, with my car, and I just travelled around, and it was around Christmas time. Um, and it was kind of weird because I was definitely looking for what am I going to do with my life. I didn't really know. <laughs> I knew that school or teaching was not really uh, um, was was something I really liked, but at the same time there was something missing. So I kind of felt like I needed to search on. Um, and on this trip, um, most probably because it was Christmas, I felt um, that it was not as easy as I imagined, kind of to follow my feet. Um, and I think the only thing that I constantly did and enjoyed very much, even though at times it was a bit hard, was taking pictures. Um, and so for me, it kind of became very clear that this is something that, that obviously, for a start, comes easy um, and is something that I immensely enjoy and kind of lifts me above daily struggles or concerns, um, feeling of awkwardness or whatever. Um, because I was on my own and at uh, Christmas time everybody is together and mm. so I was kind of a little... Um, and having kind of come to this conclusion, I then decided to take it further. I saved up some money um, and I knew I had about a three-month window in which I could go away and do something um, and kind of deepen whatever I wanted to do, find out. Um, first of all, I wanted to go to India mm -hmm. um, because this is one of the places I always wanted to go. 
Um, then I felt, no, it's not such a good idea because it is, after all, very uh, intense and amazing and most probably would sidetrack me. So I came to England, <laughs> <laughs> London, which I thought is, you know, for me as a Swiss person, it is uh, exotic, it is different, but it is still fairly understandable. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was here for three months and I wandered around and I just took pictures by myself and just photographed whatever I felt I had a connection to. And that's how it started for me. And then I just realized that I really, that I just, for me, this photo photography was the first thing I, in, I felt there was no end to it. Like all the other things I started, like I started, studied biology, um, I uh, worked in a children's home, um, I did teacher's, teacher's degree. They all felt finite. They all felt like I already knew the outcome. And mm. with photography, I just felt that was everything, uh, every bit I looked at or managed to do or achieved, uh, small little steps, it widened itself. Mm. So I felt like it was just brilliant. <laughs> and so when you first started, you were just photographing sort of things that interested you. Yeah, I might. Did you have a genre that you were thinking you would go, you would start to kind of focus on certain type of photography or? No, none at all. I, I think I set myself the, um, the task to photograph the things that moved me. Mm -hmm. So anything, anything that I felt a connection to or that I had a memory with. And then I, at that time I went to Snappy Snaps, I had my photos developed and then I stuck it in a book and I write. I wrote underneath something, whatever I remembered, I thought when I took the photograph. Yeah. And I already very much wanted to photograph people. Mm -hmm. And I was quite scared though, to kind of uh, approach that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, How did you overcome that fear? Um, yeah, I think just practice, I, th I think. I, I also realized that when you feel awkward photographing people, they know feel awkward. Mm. It's really just the way I see. That's how I feel. How I, what I believe is when you're photographing something. And the other thing, that, the reason why I've overcome is because I actually now hardly ever photograph people without asking them. Right. So I always ask. Okay. The people that I'm photographing generally are aware of it. Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah, that's most probably how I overcame it there. Yeah. Right. And, and now do you think that you've become what, what you'd see as a documentary photographer? Do you think that you, or would you not really class yourself that way? Um, yeah, no, I think so. You are. So how did that kind of journey take, happen where you started to kind of do more documentary projects? Um, well, I think, um, I think I, I've, I've always been really curious about other people and what they do mm -hmm. and uh, why they do what they do. And um, so I think photography for me, one of the reasons why I love it so much is because it gives me this, it gives me, uh, it allows me to approach other people, yeah, yeah, and to 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 ask them, ask questions. Yeah, yeah. it's a tool. Yeah, it that is. is between me and them, mm. and it also allows me to put the world in order. So it's kind of it's good because two things that, that I <laughs> yeah. feel like often I am in need of. Uh, I really want to talk to people, but without the camera, it's awkward, and I'm also shy. Uh, I would be too shy to just ask. Mm -hmm. And I am also quite. I'm often interested in people that are not the people that you wouldn't necessarily, that don't give the signal out. Oh, come on, you need yeah, to talk okay, to. Yeah, okay, yeah. So, 
Yeah. And you've moved around quite a lot growing up, living mm -hmm. in different countries. So do you think that's kind of made you the, the inquisitive person that you are? And how do you, do you think that it's, is that sort of, you know, did that help your first journey out taking pictures? Do you think you've been influenced by the traveling that you did when you were young and um, a sort of uh, I, wanted to explain the world? I think, I think it's definitely enriched um, my view of the world in a sense of that I, I'm, I don't... Cause it, but yeah, tell us about you. So you're born in India, I know that. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was born in India. Um, uh, my father worked as a pediatrician in the Tibetan children village. My sister, uh, Bhutti, who is adopted, she was already there. And then we lived in India for, I think, about a year when we went back to Switzerland and then we went to live in Bhutan for uh, four years. Mm. So we were home maybe for about a year. So all in all, I came back to live in Switzerland when I was six. So okay, so we quite young. Yeah. Do you have strong memories of Bhutan? Yes, I do, yeah. I have strong memories, um, particularly smells and mm -hmm. sounds. And uh, it was because it was so completely different. Mm. It was really like Middle Ages at that time. There was one road across the whole country and there was no electricity, there was no... Uh, I mean, it, it was completely different. Yeah, wow. Uh, yeah. We had, I think, uh, the hospital in which my dad worked was the only place with a car for a long, long time. So it was really, we were afraid of bears and, and that was it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And do you think that that has, um, those sort of memories of the, the sort of smells and the sounds, do you think that sort of influences your approach to photography in terms of your aesthetics in photography? Do you think your travels and... I'm definitely very insatiable when it comes to travelling. I'd love to go everywhere. That is, that is... That is true. So we've always travelled, and I think travelling is is a really it's an amazing thing. It, it enhances, the, it widens your view, and it makes you aware of how small you are and, and how many people there are and all the other lives. But I think what the many travel, what the, the, the amount of travelling has done to us or to me as, as as a person is more that I don't really feel connected to any particular nation. So I don't feel particularly Swiss or uh, I'm not connected to a single place. Mm -hmm. And I think that has informed, as is a lack of something yeah, that okay. I don't have, as also something that I don't have. And I think, I don't know whether that has to do with the travelling or with the fact that my parents the way that they woke me up, mm -hmm. but it's definitely kind of affected my curiosity towards people who have that very strongly. Oh yeah. So yeah. like communities, for instance, uh, the, the fish porters, you know, communities that, that have that really, really strong, mm. that connection to a place and to uh, work and to, to a group of people, which I, I don't have. Right, yeah. yeah. Why did you go and uh, do the MA at the LCC? What motivated you and how has that altered your, your approach to photography? And um, I, I did DMA because I really wanted to become more connected to uh, other photographers and, and just the photography world in England and just get more professional, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. definitely. Before, I, I worked for the big issue a little bit and I did, I did, I did a, you know, projects. 
But I mean, for me, DNA also was an amazing thing because it was just a year of playing. It's, you have a whole year that you obviously have a lot of things you need to do because there's a lot of tasks that they, they give you. But in essence, this is a year where you mm. not necessarily ask of yourself to earn any money with photography yet or, or to do, do much other work. So you're kind of calculating that in, that's a year where I give myself the time to explore. Mm. And that was amazing. Mm -hmm. mm, yeah, definitely. Mm. And did you do uh, photojournalism? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And you met some really interesting people. Yes, I did. Yeah, mm. I still have uh, a lot of of the people that I studied with that are really close friends, mm. and, and I am absolutely grateful for that because um, it's 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 so necessary to have uh, a network. Yeah, it is. Uh, photography, yeah. and I think in some way, unless you do a school, you don't develop that kind of closeness to somebody yes. uh, in the same area of work. I mean, yeah. and you get very close. You meet people that you admire or that you like their work and uh, or people that do similar things, but you don't see them every day. And Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That yeah. I think that having a network is really important in photography because it's quite a lonesome mm. task being a photographer, isn't it? Mm. So it's good to have that sort of support group that you can give feedback for each other and support and outlets for your work and things like that yeah yes and and, and just discuss yeah discuss exactly. what you're about to do and also I guess in a sense kind of have realistic people you compare yourself with so you kind of you look at the people that have done the MA with you and you kind of look at oh you know what have they achieved and yeah what are the routes that they have taken basically mm. and interestingly when I look back and I look at what routes they have taken I now think in hindsight, yeah, of course. <laughs> of course, yeah. that was that way they were going to do it. So how did you sort of come out of the MA different to how you went in? Because I'm sure, because you say it's a year of kind of just being able to do photography, so it must really kind of hone your approach, you know, your kind of signature as a photographer. I don't do you think, think there are any big shifts in, in, your, in how your photos look or the sort of things that you photograph have before and after? I think what it definitely did to me is it kind of it gave me, it gave me um, some ideas, uh, some possible routes to take. It gave me examples of yeah. what is, you know, a realistic expectation and what maybe not. Mm -hmm. um, and but actually, in terms of signature style, I, I think because I really wanted to explore and play. I didn't really, at the end, feel like I, I knew what I was going right, to do okay, now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that came afterwards, yeah, kind of, oh my god. <laughs> okay, yeah, so how, how did that come afterwards, just through going out there and... I think I've, now I believe that, maybe not for all photographers, but for me, at least, they, they, there is no other way than the way you do it. Right, okay, yeah. You just, you, because that's what you see, and it's, what, it's, it's the projects you approach, it's the people you talk to. That's, that's just you. And so when I look at pictures now, I often try and uh, kind of look at, you look at the photographer that has taken them, no? You kind of, you see, you see kind of maybe what person that could be. Or yeah, yeah. You, you, can, you can make some kind of, uh, draw kind of conclusions, what approach they have taken and what kind of personality they are. Mm, yeah, that's true. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I think my curiosity towards people, and then I'm also obviously kind of, I think yeah, I want to want to talk about things that I feel are important, um, or communicate things that I feel are maybe not not seen or not mm. or not not seen, but 
need not completely one more in, kind in of the open, yeah. Need one more person to, <laughs> to yeah. look at it, kind of, I don't know, yeah. Mm. So the, the course refined your, your skills on many levels and gave you access to a network, mm-hmm. helped you kind of obtain more realistic expectations, which I think mm. is, uh, yeah, is something that I, I've, I haven't really thought about previously until you say it, but I think it is an important uh, aspect of it all, because otherwise, yeah, you, you kind of look at James Nachtway and, and others and you know, you, you aspire to be like them, mm-hmm. but you have nobody else to kind of compare yourself to, you know, mm-hmm. who's at a similar, similar level. You just look at them and, and you aspire, but uh, yeah, you don't, you don't necessarily have that network that is at the same point, that same point of uh, evolution in terms of their photography and their mm-hmm. likes. So yeah, I think that's of great value. Mm-hmm. But do you think there's any aspect of the course that maybe you would have benefited from just learning on the job, just spending a year continuing with the big issue or exploring your personal projects and doing other things? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, uh, before I did the MA, I kind of gave myself like an apprenticeship. I kind of thought in my head, this is my apprenticeship, kind of. I really, um, I'm setting myself very clear tasks. Mm-hmm. I'm going to photograph this person and I'm going to try and tell their story or I'm going to, just for myself, going to try and make it really visible. I had a friend of mine as a photographer in Switzerland, Manuel Bauer, and I kind of, so he, he was a bit my tutor, so I kind of okay. gave him my photographs and stuff. And so I, so I kind of did that a little bit before. Right. And I think at the time when I, when I, when I went to the, when I did DMA, I was really ready to, to kind of meet people. Mm-hmm. Because, um, yeah, as a foreigner in, in London, um, it's kind of hard to meet English people. So you meet a lot of other people that obviously are also, you know, here for a small part of, of a journey or mm. uh, maybe for a year or two. But to meet actually the, the, the English who are here for a long time is, is quite difficult. So, yeah, I was ready for that. Yeah. Did you find your course was made up of quite a few English people or yes. was it very international? Yeah, it was very international, but there were also some oh, English okay. Yeah. Or some people who stayed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How has your experience as a professional photographer since the MA, since graduating, how has that kind of influenced things and, and evolved? I think there's, there's, there's obviously the, the fact that I um, you know, have a little daughter and I had, to, had her pretty soon after. So it was right. uh, we, 2007, December, it was the end of the MA and then in 2009 I had her. And that I think has impacted has, has quite has impacted quite a lot on on, on how much time I yeah, have cool. to yeah. kind of put in. <laughs> and as a as a professional, I think also that has a lot a lot of change has happened since then, particularly with uh, the print media. Um, the way it has influenced me is that I'm kind of really moving more into uh, multimedia pieces. So I'm really interested in audio. Mm-hmm. I've, I love recording sounds and, and so this is something that I'm, I'm doing now anyway, but I think the need for it is, is, is definitely pushed that forward. forward. Well, that relates back to your original trip, you said, didn't you, that you went off with a camcorder and... Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. so you're kind of going back to that. Mm. That's nice. <laughs> yeah. How do you sort of manage to juggle professional, personal projects, daughter? Mm. <laughs> How but do you keep it all going? It's not very. It's, it's not very easy. No. Yeah. Um, I think the way I, I, I do it is basically, I have priorities. So my daughter is priority number one, 
And uh, if, if, for instance, if, I, if she's not feeling well or if she has anything like this week, then I, I can't work. Mm. It's just the way it is. And then, then photography is priority number two. So I do a lot of different work. So I, I, I do. I do anything, yeah. <laughs> anything in photography. Mm -hmm. So I work for NGOs, I, I work for corporate um, clients, I, I, I work a lot with artists, I do a lot of things with my father. Um, he's an artist in Switzerland, so I kind of shoot his films and um, photograph all his sculptures. And I've done increasingly more for other people as well. Um, and I do, I've also done quite a lot of weddings, particularly when Harper was small, because it's ideal. They're on mm. the weekend and it's a compressed time. Mm. And, uh, and afterwards you have a lot of editing to do, but you can do that at home. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think I've just adapted. Mm. And the personal projects, I think they are really, they're really important for me. Mm. So I think they the way I see things going for me is that I drive my personal projects forward. I always do them on my own back. So I just kind of take it slow, one step at a time, and when I'm finished with it, then I try and sell them. Also that allows me to be completely independent, mm. and particularly with time, because this is an issue for me, as I can't, I can't condense things often. So. Yeah. Uh, so how did the Last of the Fish Porters project come about? How did you get it off the ground? And um, I think the, f the first time I went to Billingsgate Market was really as a tourist and it was really early on when I came to England and I was just um, blown away by, by, by the Englishness. <laughs> it, was kind of, it was quite scary um, and uh, all these people running about and I was in yeah, I, I, and I love markets. I love, I love markets. When I go to places, I often go to see the markets because there's something condensed about them that I like. Um, and also, when I had my daughter, I looked after her for a year. And I did work in that year, but no, no personal projects. So I kind of worked for commissions. And by the end of the year, I was really desperate to, <laughs> to, to start something. And somehow, these porters jumped into my head. I wanted to do a portrait series and I remembered that their uniforms looked pretty amazing um, visually. And so I went back. There's another factor that makes it appealing, made it appealing to me at the time and it was that it was really early in the day. So I basically could go there and back before she even woke up. So I went and I saw the, the, the early morning light and then this, this, you know, uniforms, the, the white smocks and everything, and I thought that was beautiful. And I uh, started taking some portraits with, uh, with the Bronica and on slide film. Um, and then pretty much on the first visit, I started talking to them and they told me uh, about the closure right. and they were losing their jobs. And I think one of the reasons that made me go back to the porters was the fact that when I saw them the first time, they were they were so they were so uh, kind of loud and they were walking around in the market and joking and flirting and and they didn't strike me as like workers. They struck me more as comedians or even even actors on a stage. And I, I was just 
baffled by the fact that what I saw was actually not uh, the most enjoyable job, but they seemed to really enjoy it. And I, I just, that the kind of that bit I stumbled upon and I thought, it's really weird, I need to find out why they're enjoying their job so much. What is it about that job that they love so much, that they, they, they love? And, and so when I went again, um, you know, that was one of the main reasons and I thought, wow, so they are really loving this job and, and they're losing it now. Mm -hmm. So what is that going to, how is it going to affect them? What does that mean for them? And so pretty much at the very beginning, I think it was the first or the second time even, I, um, I kind of asked around and I said, you know, so what are you doing to, to keep your jobs? And they talked about the campaign, um, but they were all already kind of quite negative. They were, uh, they were saying, yeah, I don't think it's going to work. Um, and so I said, well, would you, would you like to be part of a, would you like me to do a project? I mean, would you like, I would like to come back and I'd like to document this and take photos. And they were like, yeah, of course, that'd be lovely. And yeah, that's how it started. So the decision had already been made that, or it was kind of still a period of uncertainty. It hadn't been finalized, but it was almost definite. It was a year before the, they lost their job. So it was still quite a while away. They were, right. they were, but I think they were already kind of campaigning for a year right. uh, and, and it didn't look too rosy. Right. Um, and they were very disappointed that there was hardly any press. Right, yeah. And, and hardly any mentioning. Did they have a, an opinion on why there wasn't much press? Yeah. Or do you I mean? A, yeah. They, they, I mean, I think a lot of them uh, then immediately said, well, you know, corporation, and the city corporation, they, they, don't, they don't want this to get out mm. and, and so on. And I don't know whether that is true, but I think there's, I mean, it's definitely been quite quiet. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, your project is the first time I heard of it. Yeah, yeah, likewise. yeah. 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 and that's um, amazing. Yeah, I think it was a really, I mean, there was, obviously you could either say that it was calculated or you could say it was an unfortunate coincidence that the um, Olympics happened at the same time. Mm. Um, and a lot of people, there were so many stories coming out of this area that had to do with something or another. That, in connection with the Olympic site. Mostly positive though, or negative? Yeah, there yeah. were some, yeah, some positive and then some were quite negative okay, as well. Okay, yeah, so I thought we were saying that yeah, yeah. all these really sort of positive stories about rejuvenation mm. of areas meant that these sort of negative stories get yeah, I think overlooked. There was, I think there was a definite, maybe slight agenda, mm. what is going to get kind of heard and, and what not. Um, and then there was the BBC. They were doing a, a, do a documentary film an hour-long documentary on Billingsgate Market. But there was, um, in conjunction with other markets, so it was with Smithfield and um, I think Covent Garden, I'm not sure. Spitalfields? Yeah, Spitalfields probably, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Smithfield, Spitalfield and Billingsgate Market. Um, there was a three-part series and one of which was Billingsgate and the porters really had high hopes, but it came out, for a start, it came out after they, they were made redundant right. and then also because they obviously they were they were looking at the market in a, as a whole yeah so they didn't uh, there was not too much emphasis on the porters and their mm. story right and so yes it, I ended up to be I think the only 
kind of visuals, visual story about the loss of, 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 of the work that they had. And they were hugely, hugely grateful at the end, yeah. So was your work used during the campaigning process and for mm. the campaign? No, um, because I only finished it after. So I, I put the, the, the piece together with audio and, and, and photographs um, about a month before the end. So it was shown in Photo 8 and in The Guardian, but they didn't use it for the campaign. They asked me if they could um, but it was already too late. And right. Yeah. Mm. So it's more kind of a it's more a historical document then in that way mm -hmm. that you've sort of captured something that yeah I mean, I mean it, it shows their plight but it sorry. also shows that no sorry it, it sort of documents about that these people were there and that that's no longer. Mm. It came out uh, about I think it, no it was shown on the fifth of May or something like that and the no hang on no no it was shown in April little bit before they lost their jobs mm -hmm. so it was kind of the idea was to 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 raise awareness in a, in a sense yeah 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 it was too, it was too late mm, yeah yeah okay, yeah but I think for me it was just important to kind of give them um, a voice you are yeah and record their last year mm -hmm. um, and a lot of them are kind of it was, yeah, I think in hindsight a lot of them told me that it was kind of important for them to be part and to see it mm. finished and, yeah. And how did you get access to, to the market? Because the City of London Corporation obviously has regulations in terms of access to photographers and things. Mm -hmm. Did you, did you have free access? Did you um, have any resistance from the City no, of London Corporation? I, I was, I was, I was a bit... Uh, I, I thought about it and I thought, oh, because I obviously, you know, you go on the website and you read that thing and you go like, oh my God, <laughs> this sounds, this sounds pretty woof. And, um, but then I called them up and I said what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. And I asked what is going to happen. Um, and the woman I spoke to, she was very nice. She said, uh, well, it sounds like this is, this is not a commercial project. And so just apply for a non-commercial permit. And uh, basically, you know, if you, if you ever have any commercial gain, let us know. Right. Wow. And then, then every time I went, I had to apply. Mm -hmm. So every time. And yeah. then after a while, they knew. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, uh, yeah, whatever. Right. Yep. <laughs> you again. Right. Yeah. So, um, and then once the project was finished, I was like, oh, what am I going to do now? Yeah. <laughs> and I was really like, oh. But I think they look at me and they kind of go like, oh, yes. As a fly, <laughs> right. it's not really. I think there. So there's been no no communication. No, I did. I did actually inform them, and I said to them where it's going to be shown. Yeah. I think my approach was just be upfront and honest and say what's happening, and then they were kind of yeah, it's all right. Then I suppose in, in part because it was after the fact, you know, the the guys have been made redundant. Then it wasn't going to affect. Yeah. What they, you know, their agenda in any way? No. And, no. I don't think it would have been stoppable in any case. No. No. There was not much. Uh, I, I, I have. I mean, from my point of view, I think they have. They are such a powerful, huge corporation. Yeah. They do what they like, and mm. the, what they have set the course on is pretty much going to happen. There's not a little <laughs> for a journalist going to stand in the way, like, mm. or, or. For that matter, 120 men 
or a whole um, union. Yeah. So basically, not even the union would be able to stop them. Right. Yeah. 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 The City of London Corporation is it's an interesting entity. Um, yeah, very much so. Yeah. I've had I've had some experience with them as well, gaining access to one of the other markets. Ah. Which is why I'm so interested. Oh really? In, so in how was your, your experience? experience? Different. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I think I had a really nice woman. Yeah. 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 I think I think that's part of it. You know that every market has different management. That will. Mm. Yeah. I think one of the reasons why I was allowed to do this is because quite a few people in the market felt really bad about the porters and the fact that they lost their jobs. Right. And they were not. I mean, they were not saying, "Oh yeah, tell the story," but they were kind of. They were feeling for them, and they were kind of going, "Hey, you know, there's going to be something that needs to be done." Um, mm. And um, particularly this this one woman, what I also did is like I, I kept her up to date, and I sent her a PDF and explained what mm. I'm going to do with it. So you found that all the porters themselves were really kind of open to being photographed and happy to be part of the project. So how did you work at kind of? Gaining their trust or getting them on board, or were they all very open to it? No, I mean, it, it was a long time. Yeah. <laughs> it took me a long time. Um, so I, I, I came and I did a few portraits, maybe two. Then I left and I printed nice prints for them. And I came the next day and I brought them the print. Not the next day, the next time. Yeah. And I brought them the print. Um, and then obviously, because they're very close-knit, they run around, no, look, at this is my portrait, ah, look at me, oh, I look brilliant and whatever. And, uh, and then a couple of other went, oh, hang on a minute, I'm going to get a photograph of that, that's brilliant, so I want to be photographed. Um, and I think that's how we kind of worked, so more and more kind of wanted to be photographed. Right, okay. So I did kind of go to people and said, can I take your photograph, please? Or can I talk to you, can we meet? And then often they'd say, yes, love, of course, love. And then they just didn't come. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. So it took a long time. Uh-huh. How, how long? How many visits? Um, I think I went all, I don't know anymore, but maybe roughly between 20 and 30 visits. Okay, yeah. And, and uh, I also used this for me. I, I wasn't really sure yet how I, how I would do it, the whole thing. So I kind of played around a little bit as well. Um, and every now and then I came just to photograph the market and just to kind of, I had an idea how I wanted to show the movements and stuff and, and then it didn't work out. But so, you know, it was kind of nice. It allowed me also to, to find my, my approach mm -hmm. in a sense, slowly, slowly. But yeah, I think the more I came back, then I got the people that were a bit reluctant because they were like, okay, she's serious, she really wants this. And that's kind of, in a sense, the language that, yeah. that, they, that they speak. It's really not about talking. It's, it's, it's really just about, you know, doing what you said, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Then, then it got really interesting, yeah. Because I'm sure, I'm sure around that time in particular, while they wouldn't have been the most open of communities, micro-communities, because of what they were going through and the likes, and I'm sure they, they felt quite vulnerable and exposed. Um, so for them to, uh, you know, I'm sure the process was maybe a bit more prolonged as a result, you know, to, for you to gain their trust and, and get access to them. Yeah. And so initially you say you, you approach things in terms of portraiture, and then you kind of expand it into 
more contextual mm -hmm. shots of the market and things and you didn't necessarily have a, a plan you, you just went in and, and just kind of experimented and, and captured different things diff mm. you know adding different layers to the story I, want, I wanted to show them I wanted to show them their life their life at the market mm. and, and I think I just tried tried different things and how I could kind of show what I felt was something that they did again and again and again or was important to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was either, I mean, a lot of it is banter. Photograph of, of them laughing together mm -hmm. or having, having fun. That is really, really important to them. Yeah. Um, this being connected. And the other thing is basically just simply working, shifting the fish back and forth. But the main thing is really the camaraderie. It's really the, that's why they love it. You know, yeah. it's the jokes in between knowing that you can wind up this guy with one sentence. <laughs> That's the thing, yeah. So. And so at what point did you explore audio and, and start interviewing them? Very end. I at mean, the very end, right? Yeah, even the more reportage shots that I took them at the end. Because at the beginning, when you come, they have this game, or they had this game, that uh, you want to take a picture and they go, oh, you have to ask me first. You know, so it's very clear you you're not allowed. Like, uh, and they're just teasing you, but they also very clearly tell you, hey, no, you've you've got anything here. You you've no rights. Mm. Um, and I only I only felt comfortable, um, and also felt that they were not looking at me after a long time mm -hmm. when I was com I was like you know the background. I was not not that important anymore. So. Yeah. So is that why you sort of chose to kind of do quite a few of the post portraits or had you always yeah. wanted them or did that kind of come because you realised that, that was the best way to start sort of taking pictures with them was to get them to pose? No, I wanted to do a portrait series. Mm. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I really liked portraits and uh, I, that was my initial idea mm -hmm. to do a portrait series and then I found that that was actually a really good way to start talking to yeah. them and to yeah. kind of also give something back yeah. immediately to make sure that they knew I was I was not just because there's so many people I mean at that time when the portals were still there now maybe not so much anymore but at that time there was like every time you go there is tons of photographers lots of people yeah, are right. taking pictures they come because this is like everybody goes on the market to take pictures so mm. they're constantly photographed and l very few come back and give them the pictures so it's a it's a special thing yeah to come yeah. back and, and they really appreciate photographs as well and uh, the cafe has all of these pictures, right. all of these uh, mm. porters, the black and white photographs of all the porters. And so it's, it's, it's something that they have developed, developed a sense of, kind of, a, yeah, they, they've developed some love towards it. And at what point did you kind of think to yourself that this is finished, like I have everything I need? <laughs> How did you decide, yeah, that's, that's that last picture? Uh, actually, I finished this. I finished the multimedia piece before I, I finished the project because mm -hmm. I really wanted something to get out before they lost their jobs. Right, yeah. So there was a real need to finish it beforehand. And I then continued. I continued documenting the portraits until the last day. Ah, okay, and so then, that was the end and then. And then the day yeah. after, I went as well uh, to see how it really was. So. Because everybody was curious, how are they going to do it? Mm. How are they going to pull off magically all these men? You know, where, where are they going to come from? Who are they going to be? And, and by that time I was really already 
very much involved in the story I really wanted to know. And it was a very sad experience because I was not the only person who went to say it. A lot of the porters who got the sack were there too. So which? So who, what did you go and see? Uh, the, the day, the day after the sacking. So basically, they've lost their jobs on on uh, Saturday. The Saturday was the last day, mm -hmm. and then we went back. I went back to see what happened on Tuesday when it opened again. And, and they got some opened again. And they've got who other are they people gonna, in or something. Yeah, who are they going to get in to basically do their jobs? Mm. Because I think one of the things that was really painful for most of the porters was that their jobs were still there. Mm, yeah. But they were sacked. Right, so it was yeah. really personal. Yeah. You know, it's not like this. Sorry, you know, they're normal fish. <laughs> we don't need you anymore. No, yeah, it's not yeah. The fish is still there. It's like, who is going to do my job? Mm. So. Yeah. And so, who did they have replacing the porters? Well, they uh, they had a lot of uh, different people. But I went and I immediately saw that a lot of all the guys that I photographed went as well. So I was kind of then more occupied with looking at them and, and, yeah. and talking to them and also photographing them uh, instead of the new. Yeah, because there's, a, there's an image uh, in the cafe, I think, which is the Tuesday after the sacking. Yeah. And, mm. and it is a very somber, mm. there's a very somber kind of feeling and, and atmosphere mm. um, within that image. And you can see, and I'm sure it must have been devastating for them. Have you followed up on it at all? Yeah. And um, beyond that, like the day after, the, uh, the Tuesday after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am. I'm basically con uh, currently doing a project with them. Right. So I I needed a break, and I thought it is it's finished. It's okay. It's cool mm. now. I um, you know got the audio and it's all nice. Um, and then I think it was about a year after. I kind of I talked to people. I showed my work, and a lot of the feedback was. What are they doing now? You know, and I would be interested to see them again. And I kind of suddenly felt like, yeah, me too. <laughs> I'd really like to see what they're doing now. And also realized that actually, the fact that they have lost their jobs is is, a, is maybe a rather local story. So, okay, these guys have lost their jobs. It's fish fish porters in London, even though it's a you know institution or whatever. Maybe somebody else cannot connect to that. And then I thought, but actually, if, if, I, if I document the current situation, so what are they doing now in this situation, in our kind of economic situation, how are they dealing with this? Mm -hmm. And basically include the families um, and look at them privately. So we have seen them at work. Yeah. Now, mm. trying to see them at, at home. Um, so that's what I'm doing right now. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Right. And had you got sort of personal contact details of quite a few of them then? Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's not uh, it's 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 kind of not too easy. No, but um, yeah, basically my idea is to do a collaborative book project with them. So to kind of to to for them to write or to kind of tell me their own view of what's happened to mm. them or how mm. they feel about it, and then for me to make chapters. Right. So it's going to be really collaborative in the sense that I want them to have a very strong say in what's going to go in the book and how it's going to look like. Yeah. So, yeah, hopefully it comes sounds off. Sounds great. Yeah, yeah it sounds yeah, really nice, good. Yeah. Yeah. And how, how have you gone about getting the work seen? How did it get picked up by The Guardian, for example? 
Um, well, I just sent it to them. <laughs> right, right, and then. I sent it to a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, called up a lot of people, talked to a lot of people. And the response in general was, was, was quite positive. And that was a big motivator mm-hmm. to kind of try another person and another person and another person. What, what were the reasons for other people not like publishing it? Well, I don't really know what the real reasons okay. are, but I think, I mean, no, I know the, the reasons that they've told me. I mean, it's oh, some people just said they really liked the project, but it wasn't for them, or mm. that they've had so many other projects around the Olympic uh, in this area that they already had the saturation of kind of these kind of stories, or, you know, this kind of... Mm. Which is interesting because nobody has picked up on this story, actually. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I really, I really remember that that was a time where everybody had something on or other around the Olympic, mm. you know, and it was like, then this case about how the cleaners uh, were treated, you know, right. how they lived, and, and, and people who have been, you know, pushed out of the area, yeah, and, yeah. and I think there was, yeah, I think somehow they didn't want to hear about it. Too much negativity mm. around the Olympics. <laughs> so there's no, there's no local campaign, there's nothing from the local residents or, or any, because obviously that area is quite commercial, isn't it? So there's, but there, there are still residential areas, aren't there, yeah. within that area, so. I think, I mean, the Porter had a campaign, it's called Save the Borders campaign, which they got a lot of signatures, mm-hmm. something like 20,000 plus. Right. And it didn't, didn't matter. And there was no community support though, beyond they, the borders of the market. There was, I mean, there were, there were, there were big names involved, mm. and there was MPs involved, and right. even, you know, Ked Livingston uh, said his thing, and mm. um, Lord Glassman, and you know, there were lots of people involved trying to to affect something. But I think there was also a lot of misinformation. Right. Yes. Funnily enough, I was in a taxi cab one around the the time when they got when they had to leave the market and I kind of told this, we came talking and I told this guy um, what I was doing and, and, and I said, you know, this, they're losing their jobs and so on and he said, well, you know, they're earning so much money, it's about time. And I just realised that a lot of people have this perception that they were kind of just earning tons of money and not working very hard and, and basically, yeah, taking the make of it. Um, so there was a lot of kind of very subtle mis information right. mm. that led to a big part of their their community to have a lot of resentment against them right which right. I think most probably you know was yeah. uh, and then the other thing is that uh, I mean in essence in some in some way it's it's a it was an argument between the stallholders and the porters and they I from what I gather have had a rivalry throughout Billingsgate's history and the, the stallholders are the ones who buy the fish yeah. and they're the ones who sell the fish and the porters are the ones who govern the fish so they don't actually spend the money but they look after the fish and they were originally the ones who obviously walked around and brought the fish to the fishmongers mm. and then got money but they walked up and down the streets uh, uh, when Billingsgate was at old Billingsgate around Frith Street and everything and um, a new Billingsgate market they walked from, they still had the monopoly to walk with the fish in the aisle and to transport the fish back and forth and to govern, so look after the fish. Mm-hmm. But they walked from the market to the cars 
which were just parked outside. And I think a lot of the stall holders started to be a bit envious or kind of felt that they could easily do that as well. And they wanted to get rid of them. And that's how it came all about. Right. And then I, th I think the corporation picked up on that and basically you saw an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. You saw an opportunity yeah. to get yeah. rid of They wanted to get rid of them anyway. Yeah. But they got rid of them with, with the help of the stall holders. Right. Not all of them, but most of them. Right. And do you think the, the future of the market is in doubt in that area? I, for myself, but this is not uh, like a confirmed view, um, I am in very little doubt that this market is going to be moved. Um, further, further out. I, I don't really know no. where. I think I've heard. I've heard something that it most probably is going to be a one-stop shop with um, flour, vegetables, and fish together um, somewhere. And I just, I mean, just kind of thinking about economical reasons. This land is yeah. so much worth so much money. Mm. I cannot, and with uh, with the huge new station next to it, I can't imagine them keeping the market there. Mm. It's mm. just too big a piece of land, mm. only in use for a small amount of time. And I think that, that in itself is a, is a project really, you know, just mm. the, the changing face of London in that respect. You know, yeah, the fact definitely. that the, the Shard and, and the likes, all those kind of ultra-modern, um, very exclusive buildings are being invested in and endorsed and embraced and yet the historical mm. side that that's commercial that has a has commercial value and, and has community mm. social value as well is just being left or, or neglected but then also suppressed or, or destroyed mm. but it, and you know I think the same happened to Spitalfields you know it's, mm. it's been gentrified it used to be a very kind of mm. raw uh, dynamic experience and then it just got jazzed up and all these kind of branded restaurants and paving stones you know so I think that was maybe the first victim of gentrification and maybe Billingsgate's next and then Smithfield and um, but I, I think it's something that is that's happening right before our eyes you know and, and too few people are or mm. doing anything about it, or mm. trying to prevent it. Yeah, I mean, what what I thought, I mean, throughout this project, the one thing that I just thought again and again about is that, so these guys, and, and, and it was really sad because in its essence, the stallholders and the porters, you know, even though they had this kind of falling out, they, they lived together, mm. they, they were, they were friends ultimately, in a sense, and I think they, you know, partners and whatever. And I think it was just, it was one kind of society. And the fact that they all had to get up so early in the morning and work only lasted till ten, and then it was done. You know, you are you are not embedded in an everyday pulse of London. You are really a bit outside yeah. if you are working. At, at these hours and so it kind of you know it makes this kind of bubble mm. yeah that Billingsgate is and it, it's also that what makes it special you go in there and there are hardly any I mean there's no screens there's there's no tablets there's no computers uh, and 
you walk around and you can imagine yourself, yeah, this could be, it could have been exactly like this 20 years ago, mm. you know? And I think that, with combined with the fact that these men are just, they are, they just, themselves, they are wild in a way, you know, they're, they're not identified, they're not kind of pets, you know? And, and I thought it was just so sad that that was, Eroded. Not worth mm. keeping, mm. you know, was not not given any worth, and and that applies to, you know, Spitalfield. It applies to any of these places, mm. and in in its place comes a constructed kind of tame young sibling, you know. Mm. Yeah. You you, yeah. you will never ever get these feelings when you walk through Spitalfield. No, no, because it's so, it's. Controlled. Yeah, yeah. And that's the difference now before it's. And sterilized. Yeah, sterilized is a good word, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and it's really that. It's the question whether, how much do we need to control um, and how much needs to, how much do we need to get rid of what's uncontrollable? And, uh, yeah. And also about who. Who wants the politics behind that, isn't it? Like, because. To some people, this uncontrolled nature of these things is a problem. So it's about mm. who has the power to decide what's an acceptable amount of uncontrolledness mm. or not, isn't it? Yeah. And where the money is going to be made. And development now is is where the, the, there will be more money in developing the area, won't there? Mm. And more property. I would presume that's what they would do with it. Yeah, I don't know. But it's just, yeah, I don't know. It's just, but the, one of the things that I, I that strikes me even now when I meet them, when I meet these guys, they seem to be, to, to me, almost from a different era. Hmm. It is, it is, there's something, like, there is an element of this. When you go to some of the pubs in the East End, you get that feeling. Mm. Yeah. And in essence, I think a lot of it is because they were proud to do what they were doing. But also maybe the fact that it's generational. That there are many generations working yeah, under the same roof, down. you know, and, and that they haven't been affected by the transitory nature of, of London. You know, this mm. is a, a stalwart. This is a part of. This is a root of London. Mm. You know, that hasn't been affected by all this kind of influx and uh, outgoing of people from all over the globe. Mm. Uh, it, it's just kind of. It's maintained. It's. Its role, its its existence, but now it's it's being threatened, mm. which is um, yeah, it's not good. So, so where are all the people working there? Um, they were like British from a kind of generations back in that in that term, British. So they weren't sort of first, second generation, or I think there were there were a few that were not. Or they were maybe second generation. Or okay, yeah. So, yeah. Um, the stallholders were definitely also from other places. Right, yeah. Um, very international. But I think amongst the porters, yes. Mm. Yeah, and there were also no women. No, yeah. There's no women porters. Is it, why is that? Just because of the... I think the work is just really hard. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's hard work and I don't know, I haven't asked. But for me, I think of, often I heard that, that idea, okay, you're a closed shop, you, 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 know, you don't take in uh, foreigners mm. and stuff like that. Oh, they are. And I was not so much interested in that. I was really, I, I think it, w- it, it doesn't matter. I think it wouldn't have mattered if somebody would have worked, if somebody from, let's say, from Switzerland or from Bulgaria or from India would have worked there for 50 years, it would have been absolutely the same. 
it's the fact that the longevity is, is the fact that they've been there from the beginning and they've there for so long and it's it's like a marriage mm-hmm. that's in essence what I felt these guys had amongst themselves it was this really long-standing you know being together through conflict through nice things and kind of they found a way to deal with each other but do you think that they would have been open to foreigners kind of coming in um, I mean they told me that they they would have been open it was really I think the thing that it was what in what was the case is that they had you had to be recommended, so somebody had to recommend you, and then you you had to work as a shop boy, like you had to work on a stall for a couple oh, okay. of years, and then you could make your porter's license. But it was really kind of, I feel that more than anything else, the fact that it is not an easy job, and for anybody else they would have thought like I. Jesus, this is a hard job. Mm. Why would I love that so much? I think you almost have to be born into it to appreciate it. Your father must have done it, and you kind of, you you have this warmth for it. You you feel this connection to it, and you kind of go like, yeah, I want to do this. Mm. This is really important. And the history of it, that was always so important to them. It's like, you know, and the fact that you had to be almost, you had to be almost kind of already shaped for it, you know? So if, if your parents yeah, yeah, or if see, your yeah. father has lived that kind of life, you could see that they were also positives. But if you would ask a young guy now, do you want to get up at midnight and work till 10, go to bed at 8 o'clock in the evening? No, no way. Why would I want to do that? I would miss out completely on mm. So I think, yeah, that's, that was my feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And are these factors that influenced your editing? In terms of because you quite you seem to have quite a very a very strong kind of understanding of what you wanted to communicate, so I assume that having that well-defined story, well-defined message, that would have helped in the editing process in terms of saying I'm going to keep that image, not that one, and and the the images that that helped tell the story that you wanted to mm. tell. Is that yeah, I mean, I did I did definitely edit to try and tell a story. Yeah. I, I don't think I, I'm necessarily a very good editor. So, I don't know, I, I think I did a lot of asking. Um, right. Yeah, <laughs> ask friends, so what do you think about this, this, this. Uh, and then also just showed it to lots of people and kind of looked at the reactions. And then there are some images that I know people don't necessarily like, but I just like and so mm-hmm. that's why they're there. <laughs> right. So I think, I mean, I think this is the editing process. You've got to, a lot of it is assessing what mm-hmm. what what does other people what do other people see in it? How do they see it? I, I remember um, asking my friends, "What would you do? What would you do?" And then at the end, you've got to make a decision mm-hmm. yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's lots of images sneak back in. <laughs> <laughs> and are these people external to photography? They, is it a diversity of people? Um, no, they're mainly mainly my photographic friends. Right. And you do the same for them? Yeah. I assume, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you a question about the kind of aesthetic and compositional choices. Um, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about the equipment that you use, like the camera, and then your choice of the sort of shallow depth of field and the, the colours mm-hmm. um, being very kind of sort of blue and, and white, which really to me reflect the the fish and the idea of water and, and, and also kind of the uniforms of the porters, mm-hmm. but also quite sombre, which they reflect sort of the mood. 
um, of, of the images mm. and what's happening. So maybe you could tell us about those choices. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I use, I mean, I use, a, I shoot generally with a Bronica. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, with a 100mm lens. That's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's one that you can kind of, you know, look down. Oh, wow. Um, and I love to use uh, reversal film, so slight film, because I kind of, I like the colours, colours a lot. And so is that what gives those colours? Hmm, I think partly, yeah. Mm. And uh, and with these ones, I just wanted to kind of, obviously, with a medium format, it's kind of, you know, you've got to wait until the light comes. Mm-hmm. And then when the light comes, I, I kind of had to just hit that time between the light coming and then the sun eventually, or the light being too bright. So mm-hmm. it's kind of that time of day, generally, when I took the portraits. Um, I wanted to consciously really give it also some sort of a I wanted to try to give th- these portraits some sort of a look, not mm. not artificial, but just I chose similar times of day. Um, I wanted to have this kind of thing that connects them. It's like uniformity. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, the colours are very effective for the message that I think mm. that you're trying to get oh, across. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think they work very well. So you knew then, though, before with, with that equipment and that time of day, those are the sort of colours you'd get. Well, yeah, I found out when I started. Yeah, it. okay, and yeah. that was sort of, you thought this works. Yeah, yeah, yeah I did yeah. like it. I also, I really love their kind of this, this smock that they have, this yeah. really rough cloth. Um, it, it's, it's quite amazing, it's like cardboard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's really good. Um, I'm always trying to get one. <laughs> it's very practical, very durable. Yeah, yeah good they're very durable. And then kind of the distance between me and the, and the guys, I think for me it was just important to show them as men, as proud working men, mm-hmm. and that was really my intention. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to show them in a, isolated from the fish, away from the market, um, because for me it was really not. I mean, one one person who looked at them kind of summed it up, and she said, "Yeah, everybody knows how a fish looks like." Mm-hmm. And I was kind of there. Yeah, I think that's that's really what I, f- I felt that the fish would then distract. It would yeah. also give them something to hold up, and it's kind of like then immediately it becomes different. Yeah. So whenever I could, I just had them standing all by themselves. Some of them wanted to have something, a cart or whatever, and that was fine. Then I pretty much had like five or maximum 10 minutes with them, with each one, because they were working. So I didn't have a lot of time. Mm. So multimedia, uh, we've talked about the, the images and, and the equipment that you used for uh, taking the stills. How did you go about exploring the, um, the multimedia aspect of it, which, mm. if I'm correct, is audio rather than uh, video, video mm-hmm. or anything else. Yeah, well, one more thing is the camera. I also have a digital camera, the, the really dark pictures, the one, uh, the very, very, the, the night ones I had to take with that one. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Just so people don't go, well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. The multimedia, yes, audio. When I talk to people, I always um, record audio. I did it uh, for my Bhutan project already in 2007. And the reason for it is because I can't really concentrate when I, I mean, I can't concentrate when I'm writing, but I'm just too slow. Mm. So I, and also I liked at that time to basically take just pieces from the audio and, and use that as captions. So I really had one-to-one exactly what they said and not my rendering afterwards, right. mm-hmm. my kind of, imagination what they said because I always feel like it's 
it's really annoying <laughs> when you say something and then somebody else kind of, you know, writes it down completely differently. Yeah. Like, Hang on a minute. So that's not what I meant. So the captions that you've got for all these stills yeah. is actually what they say. What they said. Mm. The ah, that's, that's a good yeah. method. Yeah. Mm. And, and then, um, so that's how I, I did the audio then, but the, uh, it was basically just on the iP- uh, iPod, recorded on the iPod right. um, at the time. So the audio is not really good enough. And then uh, for this project, and the, the, the Portis one, I bought the Zoom and I, I recorded the audio on, on that one. And for me, from the beginning, because of their dialect and because of just, it was very clear, the audio needs to be somehow going with these images because they're, what they say and the way they say it and, and just the, the tone of it, I thought it must go together. Yeah. Also, because I show, obviously, this is an English project, so it's most probably going to be seen in England, mainly. So that would be a really important bit of information that would be transported by their voices. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it was very clear. Yeah. yeah. And then I was really surprised because I think actually when I listen to it now, I, I like the audio um, a lot. And I think what they've given me, as in how they talked to me and what they said, was, yeah, I feel very lucky, lucky and mm. felt very, very... Um, felt a lot of gratitude afterwards. I was like, yeah. wow, you, you guys are really nice. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah no, they shared a lot and, and mm. I think it, it really enhances the, the impact of, of the body of work, having their voices and having mm. you know, their feelings, their emotions about mm. the whole situation being recorded and, and shared through that Yeah, piece. And, and also then, right, I, I then started to record a lot of other bits in the market because I, was, I thought, oh yeah, yeah, I want to do like a like a sound carpet, mm. so you right. really have an idea of how the market, because I obviously am not transporting the market really to you with the images because they're like void of, almost void of fish. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to kind of give, give that hustle and bustle with, with, the, with the audio in a yeah. sense. Um, and I found it fascinating, really, really fascinating because it's like you can just, you know. Yeah, it gives a great sense of place, doesn't it? It really brings it alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. And it's, yeah, it's like taking pictures Without, without the visuals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really, yeah. yeah, I loved it. Yeah. So now it's I'm a combination. So you'll continue to explore it with uh, this, uh, the extension of this project yes, in yes. the homes and stuff. Yeah. Well, now I'm also taking. Uh, I'm also starting to do video, so right. I'm kind of. Uh, I'm, I'm. I'm. I'm looking at this aspect as well, mm-hmm. seeing how that works. How are so you finding it? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I have. I have shot uh, quite a few. Like short films with okay. for for my father as, right, as yes. a, an artist, right. um, so it's not something that I haven't done before. But um, yeah, I find it really interesting. Yeah, uh, I think it's 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 good, and I, I want to explore what it is what it is good for. For me, at the end, I have thought about it, and at the end of the day, the still image is in more interesting for me because it makes you, it forces you, particularly in a multimedia piece where you put some time under it, it forces you to really look at it. Mm. And that, I think, is an unbelievable tool for me. If, if I wanted to, if I give you a multimedia piece, I, I basically determine how long you have to watch it, you know, how long you have to look at each single photograph. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of power. <laughs> yeah, That's quite good. It forces <laughs> the person to slow down then at your pace, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. also. Yeah. Because when we watch video, there's movement often, no? And you, 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 you look at, or I at least, look at what's moving. 
with a still image immediately you kind of and then you start looking yeah do you think there's enough time given in multimedia pieces to, to really appreciate and, and to look in any sort of detail at, at still because yeah. it, it's only going to be for a couple of seconds yeah, before it, yeah. it goes on to the next image mm. and you know is that enough to really immerse yourself into that image and appreciate what's documented I mean I think obviously in an ideal world you'd like to have people really take time mm. but I think given the world we are in and the span of that the time span of with which people look at photographs, this is most probably as I think as good as it gets right now. Mm. Um, I, I think a lot of people look at photographs like uh, fast food, you know, you, the photograph has yeah. to be punchy, it has to have a single yeah, information immediately transported over. Um, and people say, so, no? Yep. Um, so I reckon that is. That is good, and it, 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 you can sequence them as well. So yeah. it's not just um, it's not just the duration, and I think you can push it a little bit. You can you can really try to to kind of make it long. Yeah, I think the sequencing is also a good point. Mm. That that when you have a series set stills, although if it's on the web, you, you tend to you flick through it a certain sequence. You can also jump. Whereas multimedia, you absolutely set the mm. sequence and you set the narrative in that way, haven't mm. you? Yeah, it's really the ideal. Yeah. For a, I think it's it's really ideal for a, for a story. Um, if you don't want to make a book, no, it's a lot of cost. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, the other thing I think as well is that the web is what's happening, and a lot of outlets, as I understand it, are really interested in web content. And the multimedia piece, to my mind, is the ideal web content because it combines things that you cannot print. Yeah. The audio and it is short enough. Mm. Um, it needs to be short and then it's quite unique and uh, finally to wrap up can you recommend another photographer who's been documenting local issues um, yeah there's, there's, there's quite a lot I mean there's a lot there's for instance Ed Thompson he has done a story on the EDL or uh, then there's uh, Thomas Paul who has just looked at people that are electrosensitive in the UK um, there is um, Chiara Leeming who has looked at the Romas uh, in, in the Midlands, so kind of people who are coming and living here. It's a very interesting project. Mm -hmm. This side gallery an exhibition right now. Then there is Abby Taylor Smith who is doing a project on obesity, which is really beautiful. Right. Well, not Ah, Sophie Gerard, yeah, who's kind of looking at Scotland and what's happening there. Um, okay, great. That's quite a few recommendations. Yeah. <laughs> and can you, have you also been to an exhibition um, recently um, or read a book recently that's really inspired you that you could recommend for our listeners? Mm -hmm. I've just been in t an exhibition today from uh, Dayanita Singh that was really, really good and inspiring. I, I think Mm. She's a very interesting person to look at as a photographer because she is not necessarily, she works with photography, but she doesn't declare herself as a photographer. Mm. I a think that's always fascinating. A book. Well, how does she describe herself? A bookmaker. A bookmaker, yeah. 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 And I think generally that's fascinating to, to kind of look at. Uh, I always try to, 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 not to try, I always look at things outside. Mm. So that's on at the South Bank Gallery, isn't it? Mm. The Haywood Gallery. Haywood Gallery. Haywood Gallery, yeah. 
And I'd love to, I would have loved to go to Liverpool to see Tim Hetherington's exhibition, but I can't. Great, thank you. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank thanks. you. Thank you for listening to the Documentary Photography Review Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the interview and learning more about Claudia's work, the stories she's explored, and her journey as a photographer. You can find Claudia's photography and multimedia pieces on her website at claudialeisinger.com. If you're a documentary photographer and you would like to have your work showcased on the redesigned Documentary Photography Review website, then either email me at chris at documentaryphotoreview.com or submit your work directly via the site. Unlike the podcast, the website has no particular focus. Your work just has to be documentary in nature. For more details and to submit work, go to documentaryphotoreview.com. If you enjoyed the interview and the series we have produced so far, please do go onto iTunes and rate and review the podcast. This will help us to be seen and heard by more people and help spread awareness of the photographers we interview and the stories they document. Thanks again for listening and be sure to subscribe via iTunes to have the next episode download automatically on the 1st of March. Take care.